it seems that the evidence is pretty strong in favor for hypertrophy of the long muscle length. Everything is killing your gains. Uh, full range of motion is killing your gains. Length and partials are the only thing that works. They can find us on the streets. We'll see you. It's on site. Welcome to the N1 Experience. Brought to you by N1 Education, the leader in fitness education. All right, what's up, everybody? So today I have Dr. Pack and future Dr. Milo Wolf on the podcast, and we are going to talk long muscle links and some science communication, maybe like uh, ethics of using science and talking about science, uh, you know, when it comes down to social media, or I think even just from a trying to you know, position yourself as an educator or influencer in the space. Um, so before we get rolling, guys, you guys want to just give me the cliff notes for anybody that, you know, for whatever reason, isn't familiar. Like if you're not familiar, then I don't know where you guys have been, but let's go ahead and uh, start with Milo here. Who are you? Yeah. So as you said, my name is Milo. Uh, the reason I feel qualified to speak on this podcast today is because I'm currently doing my PhD on range of motion and muscle hypertrophy. So looking at the impacts of range of motion while you're lifting on muscle hypertrophy, muscle strength to a lesser extent. And I'm about a month out from submitting my thesis. So at this point, I should be pretty familiar with all of the evidence. And hopefully we can speak about range of motion and get into the depths of what range of motion might be best, what the limitations are, and what I'd like to see more of. And uh, I feel comfortable being on the podcast because uh, we are both uh, two guys that somewhat look alike. Let me just take the glasses off and <laughs> be next to you on the screen. This is going to be audio only or video too? That'll be both, yeah. Very nice. So, but joking aside, yeah, I'm not here uh, for the ROM uh, in-depth discussion, All, although uh, being Milo's friend, colleague, and sometimes lover, um, we... Uh, you know, I've I've been exposed to plenty of things, but including range of motion research. And uh, as a practitioner, because I got to hear Milo speak about uh, the literature that was not really out there, plus his own studies that he's carried out and he, he'll speak. Um, partials at long muscle lengths are sub and just range of motion manipulation in general is something that I've had to use or I've been using with with clients quite a bit, but uh, I'm really interested in talking about science communication and, and what that really entails, because I think it's a it's a topic that we don't see often. My name is Pac, which I should have uh, led with, besides my joke, and I did my PhD on the minimum dose for strength. Awesome, awesome. So let's start off right with where, where we are with the research now. Here we are, we're recording this uh, the beginning of May 2023. Um, for anybody that's watching this from a time capsule, um, I believe right now the latest thing that I saw or looked at was um, Eric Helms's uh, review um, coverage on mass. He just reviewed the latest uh, meta-analysis, which is another calf study, and it seems to be that more and more stuff is getting published in favor of the longer muscle length. So, what is the kind of like where do we stand right now, and what are kind of like the latest insights from the published research? Yeah, so I'm very familiar with the calf study you mentioned. I'm actually, I'm pretty sure I wrote about it in my thesis yesterday for several paragraphs, and I've read it, read it as recently as a couple of days ago. Um, I'll give you the brief cliff notes on what the range of motion research by and large says at the moment, and I'm going to be using my own systematic review meta-analysis um, as a jumping off point, so it's kind of a shameless plug, but I think it's one of the more recent reviews on the topic, and I think it does a reasonable job setting the scene. 
So about half a year to a year ago now, I looked at all the literature comparing a full range of motion to a partial range of motion, looking at adaptations in muscle size, muscle strength, um, and power outcomes, sport outcomes, and even body fat, right? For some of these outcomes, not too much data, so I wouldn't put too much faith into the results. But for outcomes like muscle strength and like muscle size, we do have a decent bit of data comparing a full range of motion to a partial range of motion. Broadly speaking, when all you do is dichotomize range of motion into being either a full or maximal range of motion, right? Like when you squat all the way down as deep as you can possibly go, get as much range of motion about the knees and or the hips as possible, that would be a full or maximal range of motion. Or when you dichotomize it into partial range of motion, which is anything less than that, like a half squat, like a parallel squat, like anything like that, what you see is that for outcomes like muscle growth or muscle strength or even power and sport outcomes, effect sizes generally slightly favor a full range of motion. And by slightly favor, I mean the effect size is very small, around 0.1 for anyone familiar with effect size terminology, um, which doesn't really represent a meaningful difference in most contexts, but for people who want to optimize their adaptations, it's worth considering. Um, the interesting things to me from that meta-analysis were twofold. So we performed subgroup analyses, both on hypertrophy and for performance adaptations. I'll briefly talk about performance adaptations to kind of get it out of the way, because I assume that's not what we're here to talk about mostly. But it did seem like performance adaptations, like strength adaptations or power adaptations, were range of motion specific. So when we categorized range of, well, performance outcomes as being performed in a certain range of motion, like for example, a, an ass to grass wonder of max squat would be a full range of motion performance outcome, whereas a half squat would be a partial range of motion performance outcome. When we categorized outcomes that way, it did seem like training through a specific range of motion maximized the improvements in that range of motion, which is kind of obvious, right? Like we always talk about specificity in training, training in the rep range you want to get stronger at, training the exercise you want to get stronger at, or close variations and so forth. And it does seem like that general principle extends into range of motion and adaptations from different ranges of motion in training. What that means for powerlifters and strength athletes and other athletes is that at least some of your training should, or most of your training probably, to be honest, should be performed in the range of motion of the outcome you're interested in, right? For hypertrophy, the subgroup analysis we performed was comparing a full range of motion to a partial range of motion, but the partial range of motion was subdivided into either being performed at longer average muscle lengths or on average at shorter muscle lengths. So going back to the squat, if you're doing a half squat, that is a partial range of motion that is on average going to be performed at shorter muscle lengths than doing a full range of motion as to grass squat. You know, the average muscle length being trained through the half squat is going to be shorter in the quads, in the glutes, in the adductors, and so forth. On the other hand, if you wanted to do a partial range of motion at lower muscle lengths, you would be doing the bottom half of the squat. That could be, which not many people do nowadays, and I understand why it's difficult, um, would be from sort of an ass grass position to halfway up or just above parallel or thereabouts. When you compare full range of motion to partial range of motion and kind of divide partial range of motion into on average being at longer or shorter muscle lengths in a full range of motion, for hypertrophy, the picture kind of changes, right? So you see that depending on the muscle length the partial reps are being performed at, the hypertrophy really changes. So specifically, when the partial range of motion is performed at longer muscle lengths, the effect size for hypertrophy was actually larger than when performed with full range of motion. On the other hand, when partial reps were performed with a, a short muscle length, a shorter muscle length than the full range of motion, the hypertrophy you saw was lower than with the full range of motion. And so broadly speaking, the scene that this meta-analysis set was A, range of motion plays some impact, although not a huge one, for adaptations. 
B, for performance stuff, you probably want to be specific. And C, there's a potential that doing length and partials or long muscle length partial range of motion may have some potential for being better than hypertrophy than full range of motion. Or at the very least, there is an impact of muscle length during training on hypertrophy. That's kind of the scene that was set. The only study that has come out since then directly comparing a partial range of motion at lower muscle lengths to a full range of motion was the study described by Cassiano and colleagues. Well, essentially, this was in the calves. Um, they had participants either do full range of motion calf raises, just the top half or just the bottom half. So one group was doing shortened partials, one group was doing lengthened partials, and one group was doing full range of motion. They measured calf hypertrophy or gastroc hypertrophy at two sites, both of them relatively proximal, specifically at about one third. Uh, so one third in terms of distal um, measurement, so it's two thirds away from being the most, uh, sorry, one third away from being the most proximal measurement and two thirds from being the most distal. So about one third of the distance between the uh, lateral epicondyle of the femur to the lateral malleolus of the fibula. Um, and what you saw in that study there was one lateral site and one medial site, is that the length and partials group generally came out on top for hypertrophy. At one site, the length and partials group saw significantly more growth than both the four-range motion group and than the um, shortened partials group. And at the other site, the length and partials group only saw significantly more growth than the shortened partials group. But nominally speaking, the numbers were well, the improvements were still larger in the length and partials group than the four-range motion group, even at that site. It just wasn't significant. So when you take all of this evidence together, comparing length and partials to a full range of motion, which is now four studies, it does seem like there's a good case to be made for, hey, length and partials, there is no study comparing length and partials to full range of motion where a full range of motion grows more muscle than length and partials so far, um, which is an interesting finding. And across four studies, three have found a benefit to length and partials for hypertrophy over full range of motion, and one's found no difference. So that's kind of the state of the evidence currently uh, on sort of the, from a bird's eye view, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to have you take it from it? So I would like to look at things a little bit granular. Um, and this is potentially where, like, I think kind of knowing how we should be talking about this stuff to maybe say the general populace, right? So um, it seems that the evidence is pretty strong in favor for hypertrophy of the long muscle lengths, but also the effect size is relatively trivial. So you know, how you word that, it, it's like, it, that's a hard message to get across where it seems like the evidence is fairly convincing, but how big of a difference it makes probably is small. Um, and I think that's some, like, for me, that's where I start looking at each individual study and trying to get an idea of like, how does this like apply to the real world training in terms of exercise selection? Because most of what we're looking at is we're looking at very close comparisons of it's the same exercise through different range or whatnot. But I'm thinking of like, well, what if somebody makes the worst possible exercise selection choice, right? Of, you know, they choose an exercise that doesn't get to a very long muscle length. It's got a resistance profile that's challenging in the short and dropping off. Like it's basically ticking off all the boxes, which Usually sometimes that actually fits one of those exercises that helps you get like a really good pump or whatnot. So it may be a popular exercise versus going on the other spectrum. And I'm curious what you guys think in terms of if you, when you're looking at the research, the, from a meta-analysis perspective, the results are trivial, but it seems to be that there is a big variance in the effect size from study to study and the magnitude of difference from study to study. Like for instance, the 
what was it the the overhead tricep study that was kind of a weird one right where there was a that that was a pretty significant difference um, between groups and even in two muscles that for the most part people wouldn't consider to be associated with lengthened although a more nuanced anatomical look would show that there is some fascial components and whatnot that actually do affect the lateral head you know and, and things like that and I think that's one of the hard things is when we look at these things, how nuanced from a mechanical perspective are we looking at, well, just these two positions and what are all the things that are affecting it? Like, you know, well, did the stability change? Would the loading profile change? Like, um, I'm, I think, I'm, I can't remember if I messaged you or not about that one. Like, I was really curious to know how the setup was for those two exercises so I could get a better idea of what was the resistance profile based off of the cable orientation in the overhead um, position. So I never got an answer on that. So if you did... Uh, I would love to hear that. So the two questions I guess I have are, um, do you think that the magnitude of difference across like the best and worst exercises is probably bigger than the trivial effect size that we're just seeing in the research now? Um, and what do you think is gonna, like the best practices for communicating this right now, right, to the public based off of the evidence that we do have? Yeah. So first off, I want to say that if anyone tries to tell you that the difference between a certain range of motion and another, or a certain exercise and another is literally night or day, you know, night and day, they're probably overselling it to you. Um, we're talking about relatively small differences. Now, as I mentioned previously, and I actually passed on some research on this in the past in powerlifters, what is considered a small effect size in statistics or statistical terminology doesn't necessarily mean a practically irrelevant difference or something that doesn't matter, right? Because if you ask a powerlifter, hey, do you want to add five kilograms to your squat? Even though that might only be like, you know, five kilograms on a 300 kilogram squat, which by statistical uh, terminology may not be significant or anything, they'd be like, fuck yeah, sign me up. You know, uh, I want that because it's actually going to help them. So that's an important distinction to make, but it won't be a night and day difference. Um, and in terms of... Sorry, what was the second question? That was how big of a difference do you think oh, yeah. there is like in terms of like the worst exercise and the best exercise compared to what we're seeing in the research? And then the second one was what's our, what's our best way of communicating that? That's like the two things. Yeah. So I'd say the best way of communicating it is that it might make a small but appreciable difference in your results. So there is a point like, and I think you've kind of spoken about this, about this at length, uh, about there's kind of a pendulum swing nowadays where people are anti-optimization just for the sake of it. And like when optimization comes at the cost of a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of thinking, et cetera, for people who don't want to do that, fair enough. But like if it's something like range of motion where the cost of implementation is relatively small, and I think for a lot of people, you know, if they have to choose between doing a certain range of motion or another, and there is a small but appreciable difference, then I think that's the best way of communicating it, right? Like it, um, no one should communicate it as it makes a night and day difference. If you're not doing like some partials, you're an idiot. But I think it does make a small and appreciable difference. So if you're willing to try it out, give it a shot. Um, Ultimately, I do still understand to an extent people reluctant to try it. Like I know some people are waiting until more evidence comes out to make that shift. I don't think it needs to be black and white. And at this stage, I do think the evidence is reasonably compelling. Like, as I said, we have four studies comparing length and partials to four range motion, and none of them have shown more hypertrophy with a four range motion. So like at this point, it would be, I would be hard pressed to make the argument, even if it were to steal Manet, that you'd be missing out on much, if any growth by doing like partials. Like it, it, you just can't really make that case very strongly. Um, and then with regards to how much would someone be missing out if they made the 
um, let's say, completely wrong exercise choices versus the completely right ones based on this evidence. I would say it's, again, it's an appreciable difference. I do think that other variables are potentially more meaningful, right? Like if, if you're not trading anywhere close to failure, based on some of the research at least, you may be missing out. If you're not being consistent in your training, no matter how many linking partials you do, you won't see much muscle growth. Um, I do think some of the nuance in these findings can come from stuff like regional hypertrophy or some stuff like that that hasn't been completely elucidated. But it's also worth keeping in mind that we have a lot of adjacent evidence. So it's not just these four studies, right? Mm. As you mentioned, the tricep study, for example, there's actually now eight studies, I believe, comparing partials at different muscle lengths. And, you know, for example, doing 50 degrees of elbow flexion, either at a shorter or longer muscle length. So it's the same range of motion, just performed at different muscle lengths. And that body of evidence is super consistent in terms of showing that, hey, at least for partial reps, longer muscle length training is better. Um, or hypertrophy. And then the same, broadly speaking, applies to isometric research, where there's five studies comparing longer to shorter muscle length isometric contractions. And again, pretty consistent findings in terms of hypertrophy that lower muscle length training appears beneficial. And so at this stage, like, I don't want to over-communicate the confidence we have in length and partials are definitely a lot better than four range of motion because we only have four direct studies on this. The general pattern is very convincing across several bodies of evidence, but when you don't have direct evidence to make your claim, you want to tread carefully, you know? And I think that that's where it'll get into eventually is that some claims are being made around the mechanisms involved behind this, where there's just not much, if any, direct research, but yep. the confidence with which these mechanisms are asserted is completely out of whack. And I think that's something we need to be extremely cautious. And if you're to be a science communicator, nuance should be something you do. Mm. That's it. Yeah, we, it's like the Ronnie Coleman uh, meme, but adapted to science. You know, everybody want to be a, science communicator but nobody want to do any damn science uh and that that nuance and those disclaimers that that milo just expressed uh, very carefully are very important especially as we are commun when we're communicating to people that are not going to be doing a literature review or are, are not really familiar with uh with effect sizes but i just wanted to add on the the points that that milo made that which I wish I said on another podcast as well, that if it was any other topic and we saw the, the same, a similar trend towards anything, right? Let's say, you know, back in the day, uh, there was a meta-analysis by Schoenfeld et al. on training frequency, and it showed that uh, greater frequency resulted in greater hypertrophy. And that was just that uh, was enough to for everybody to be training every muscle group two to three times per week and argue that doing less will be suboptimal. And then a couple of years later, that was then uh, not true anymore. And in the case for partials at long muscle lengths, or at least um, talking about the evidence for full ROM versus partials at long muscle lengths, if you were to take it to court and be like, okay, here's the direct evidence that full ROM is better, or partials at long muscle lengths will be deleterious to your progress, there's, there's really not much of a case that anybody can make. And I think that hasn't received much attention. Uh, potentially because it's it's somewhat unorthodox uh, and it sounds like it's something easier or something that makes your training much much less, I don't know, hard or I don't know why people are finding it so difficult to buy into that idea. Maybe you have some something to add there. Um, Actually, I just have like a follow-up question on that because so I love talking about mechanisms um, just from a, you know, I have a biochem background, right? So like, you know, but I, I was 
thorn and mechanisms like in terms of my my university background um but from a from a practical perspective you know the more we know about the mechanisms the more i see that as is like okay this gives me the ability to now kind of change the way i'm applying this to an individual right so when i'm thinking like well what are all the different ways that i could apply this you know it could be partials it could be pauses is it partials only is it partials at the end you know like is it just choosing exercises? Is it trying to choose exercises that get more to an absolute length and position versus just the average long muscle? Like, like I'm looking at all, like I'm looking at all these things and I'm playing around with them in practice. And I mean, these aren't things that, you know, we just started doing like, like my philosophy has been to use more, like basically the way I usually put it is we partitioned our volume about 70% towards the lengthened side on hypertrophy phases. And then you know, when we're focusing on more of a metabolic or phase or whatnot, or sometimes beginners, we're actually kind of flipping that and focusing a little bit more on the short position. Um, but I don't ever go like a hundred percent either way. I think there's, I think there's skill, orthopedic strength benefits and minimal fatigue cost to including a little bit of, a little bit of short range in there. Um, you know, when I'm looking at that, and again, it comes down to practicality, right? Like, well, how much time and effort and whatnot do you have to play with and then ultimately you have to make decisions for an individual but i think understanding mechanisms really helps that so i can see why one people are very interested in those because to me it's like you need that information or at least you need to have some sort of model or theory so that then you could start applying the stuff in real life um but at the same time where where when we don't have that information yet you know what's the what's the appropriate way to talk about that. Like I, I kind of teeter back and forth between feeling like, man, I can't say anything unless I can like firmly back it up with, you know, scientific research versus me being very frustrated of like, look, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a professional in this field. You know, I pay attention to everything when I'm an educator of thousands and thousands of coaches, I probably have more data points than anybody in terms of feedback, like in practice of like my coaching community, all applying this and they're switching and doing these exercises and these techniques. And then we're getting feedback from, you know, you know, thousands of coaches on how this stuff is actually working in the real world. Um, you know, it'd be awesome to just be able to just say, Hey, here's my opinion on this. But at the same time, like, well, am I, am I, is that allowed in 2023? Can I just be like, Hey, here's what I think. Um, and how do, how do we, how do we balance that? You know, how do we balance that? Because I feel like depending on where somebody comes from, people like they'll sit on one side of the fence on like, look, you you shouldn't say anything about a topic unless we have firm research on it. Or in, in order to advance the field, we should all be able to just share our, you know, opinions, you know, as long as, I don't know, do we have to earn a certain level of credential or experience or whatnot till we get to that point where our opinion is, we'll say valid? No, it's, and it, it, it's like, you have we have to be cautious and we have to like as evidence-based practitioners our experience in the field and you know our experience working with athletes that are not really represented in you know in, in some of the studies that we see and and so on and so forth and applications that are not represented in studies that we see uh matters too and we can express an opinion as long as it is expressed in, in the right way that conveys a certain level, uh, a level of certainty that has a few disclaimers uh, presented before it. So you could say, hey, 
there is a growing body of evidence that shows that long muscle lengths, uh, training at long muscle lengths seems to be really good. And in some cases, it may even be better than full range of motion. At the same time, you telling uh, or me telling or Milo telling everyone, hey, stop uh, training at full ROM at all costs because you're leaving gains on the table or you're wasting your time or whatever. Because there, there, there's other factors to consider. That would be that would be wrong or saying that parses at long muscle lengths are the thing. That would be wrong as well. But communicating something with caution and at the same time keeping an open mind allows you to, to express an opinion even if you can't necessarily back it with a ton of evidence. This the same way we do with, with other topics where we don't have direct research looking at a bunch of stuff that we apply in the in the field. For example, um, the, how fatiguing a certain exercise can be. Like, let's say, prescribing Romanian deadlifts uh, uh, to, to clients where a lot of clients will come back and say, hey, I was sore for plenty of days. Now, we have some direct, some some research showing that the fatigue generated by squat, bench, and deadlift was, was similar or something along those lines. But that, as an evidence-based practitioner, you're not going to say, oh, here's a, a study. This is what it showed. I'm disregarding your feedback. Uh, but at the same time, you could cautiously say, hey, there is some evidence to say that this may not necessarily be true, but let's see how you how you react to it, uh, whether it fits your preference, and so on and so forth. But unfortunately, that doesn't sell or it doesn't sound as sexy or as convincing. And people, especially if you have credentials, come to you for an absolute answer. And that's why I was a bit mind-boggled with this, how uh, partials on long muscle lengths became a bit of a controversy, because I don't think the message is that controversial. It's... Guys, this is what the evidence says, uh, or at least shows for the time being. Nobody's saying disregard all the training that you were doing and just do partials at long muscle lengths. But for me personally, as a practitioner, it gave me a lot of confidence in prescribing some uh, partial uh, partials at long muscle length training for a bunch of clients and doing some myself as well. And that's about it. Like I, I don't, I don't know if, the, if there's much. Like yeah, I, I, I didn't get it. I didn't get why it became such a whoa. No, this is not the thing. I find it ironic because I don't know that anybody's actually put out more information on how to fully shorten a muscle than than I have, right? So if 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 anything, if anybody was just like, man, these guys are they're messing up my business. I have all of these exercises on how to fully work the short position, you know. But we have for the length of position as well. But yeah, I think I think a big part of it is, you know, anytime a topic comes out where somebody can like really pick a side and you know, I think when it comes to training, people have their preferences and they want the research to support their preferences. So if they're high, if they were like, Hey, I'm high frequency or I'm low frequency or whatnot. So I, I saw basically tribal stances on pretty much everything when it comes to training, you see the same thing in nutrition, right? Um, I just think that, I just think for nutrition, the zealotry is a little bit harder than it is in training. Cause I think, I think people that train are just a little bit more down to earth than people that just, just diet. Right. Um, you know, I mean, and you know, I say that as a guy that really loves training way more than dieting. So maybe that's a very biased opinion there. Um, but I think that's the thing. Like if you, if you, if you train and you try these things, you, you know, you realize that there isn't like, oh, Hey, I switched to this other program and all of a sudden I got five times the hypertrophy or like, you just, you're, you're just much more down to earth on understanding the reality of how much of a difference this stuff makes and how much there's just all of these things that, that have to go to go together. But I do believe that once it, like as, as soon as it comes down to people sitting in front of a keyboard, they want their preference, like they want their, their, their team to win. And I think that's why there's, 
all of a sudden, like one new piece of evidence comes out, you know, and it's there. And when it comes to the partials, um, honestly, I don't see, I, I really only see like a very small group of people that are kind of pushing back on, on this one. Like I would say like comparatively to the others, I just think it's that those people happen to be very vocal in the social media space. Um, right now, which I mean, we can skip ahead to kind of some, so, some of the arguments that maybe have been kind of put out there, uh, if you guys want, um, yeah. which is, is, is it cool if I just touch on a few things that you mentioned? Mm -hmm. So first of all, disregard everything Pac said, if you're doing four range of motion, you're leaving gaze on the table. Fuck you. Uh, on a serious note, I think it is all good to speculate like about the mechanisms, about how to apply it even, right? And I do think that models are helpful, but they're generally a lot easier to establish the more data you have, right? Um, I think when there's not much data there, ultimately, these studies comparing length and partial full range of motion, they're not perfectly generalizable. They're not perfectly applicable to the real world, because oftentimes, for example, they use one exercise, which is something that we're trying to address with a new study we have, um, we're conducting data collection for now. So there are a few limitations to existing studies, like, for example, the fact that they use one exercise and not a whole program, the fact that they're often relatively untrained people, so it's not necessarily going to generalize exactly the same way in terms of magnitude of change or what have you, or how much more beneficial linking partials are compared to those studies. But these studies are relatively applied studies in the in the sense that they measure people's muscle size after doing linking partials or doing full range of motion. And so I think rather like applying it is directly is a safer bet than trying to model something around it and then making inference based on that model, right? Because a model is helpful in making and allowing you to make predictions that you can then either test, right? Like if you want to make a model and then generate predictions and then test those hypotheses, that can be a nice way of actually checking whether a model holds up. And so models are helpful in that way and in helping explain findings that you've seen. But when you don't have enough data to really form a model, I think it can sometimes be problematic. And the second thing I'd say is with regards to applying this research, there are most certainly ways to apply that aren't length and partials. The analogy I typically use is that of gambling. If you're a gambler, the best way or the most surefire way or the most probable way of making greater gains and muscle size as a result of this research is to actually do length and partials. Because we haven't looked at emphasizing length and position via tempo or picking exercises that preferentially um, bias the length and position, you know, like whether that's uh, a more intense resistance profile at that position or what have you. So while you could absolutely, for example, pause in length and position, and in all likelihood, I think there's kind of a distinction between model and principle. The general principle of length and work seems to be good for hypertrophy is a very straightforward model. It, it could, like a principle or a very straightforward model, wherein somehow emphasizing the length of position is likely to be good for hypertrophy. It doesn't really make any claims about the mechanisms involved or what things may be better than others. It just makes a general claim based on a few bodies of evidence that point towards this principle. And so I think that absolutely, if you don't want to go with a partial range of motion because you have, let's say, performance goals or you have preferences for full range of motion, as many people do, as I've realized recently, um, it's absolutely fine for you to just emphasize the length of position by exercise selection, by a pausing your length of position or anything else. Just be aware that A, it's not the most probable way of benefiting from the research because we don't have research on these, these things. It's indirect inferences, essentially. Um, and B, there may be some limitations to that stuff that we haven't thought of. 
Specifically, you touched on fatigue. Now, I've kind of looked around. I haven't really found much compelling evidence that beyond some differences in novelty causing fatigue, that lower muscle length training is inherently more fatiguing. Specifically, I'm aware of one study that the guys over at Data-Driven Strength are conducting, where they compared uh, one arm training at exclusively lower muscle lengths with actually doing a Bayesian curl uh, with a bench, with the arm and the cable positioned in such a way as to maximize the stretch in terms of positioning on the, the elbow flexors, and also so as to maximize the tension, the active tension at the very bottom position. So essentially, really emphasizing the length and position for the elbow flexors, versus another condition, the other arm, performing half their training with that exercise and half their training with a 90-degree preacher curl, wherein their biceps are relatively shortened, and there's not much emphasis on length and position. And in terms of what they've told me, they've finished the day collection, there wasn't really any difference in the amount of fatigue that was reported by participants at all, in terms of soreness, in terms of anything. So I think the assumption that long muscle length training is inherently a lot more fatiguing, it's possible it's more fatiguing. I just haven't seen the data. But I think the assumption that it's a lot more fatiguing, you know, definitely like if you know of any research, absolutely let me know, but I just haven't seen it around. So you guys might be aware, we have our own little lab, you know, here, which by all means, we are, you know, we're playing with Legos, um, and, and I'm fine. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm fine. Like I'm not trying to step on the toes. Our lab is just a way for us to like, Hey, where can we fill in the gaps and actually test the stuff that we're applying? And, you know, we're looking at, you know, tons and tons of different exercises and stuff like that. That's unfeasible to expect that with, within a reasonable, you know, probably within my coaching career that, you know, you would look at all this stuff in mass. So it's really cool to just on the day, be able to like, Hey, we have three people. Let's just, you know, let's see what we got. Um, so what I what I can say is is that from the I found the same thing from a published research, but an observation in what we've done um, is we have seen that if we go all the way to the short versus all the way to the lengthened, that we do see a difference in soreness um, and return to baseline strength in most things. And we've looked at this with uh, with knee extension um, and. It, it does seem to be that like, there is definitely an impact of the repeated bout effect and stuff. So if somebody's currently exposed to the, you know, the, something, so like being able to actually like take somebody away from, you know, those lengthened ranges for a little bit, or just those exercise periods seems to make the impact significantly more drastic. Um, but for example, like we have all the prime kits, so we can change all the resistance profile. So if we take the leg extension, um, and we compare loading up the short position versus the long position. Um, and the leg extension, not that much difference, you know, between those two groups. But if we compare that to something like a pendulum or half, where we can get really actually full knee flexion, because you can't quite get full knee flexion. And most people are doing some sort of squatting pattern where they're likely getting more knee flexion than they are in the leg extension. So when we just compare the leg extension to the leg extension, that instance didn't, that make, didn't make that much of a difference. But if we compared the same protocol and efforts and everything, using a leg extension in the short position versus a pattern where we can get to full knee flexion, then all of a sudden there's a pretty massive difference in that. And obviously now we're getting into where these exercises are a little bit more different, but at the same time, I'm like, but that's actually the tools that we're going to use in real life anyway. So, you know, maybe from a research study design perspective, that's not as helpful, but for me, in terms of choosing the actual exercises that's available, that's like very useful and practical information that we can pass on. Um, to the coaches, uh, I don't know how the, uh, how the elbow flexor, like what, the, what, what exactly what they were doing, 
um, we did find a difference in both elbow flexion and elbow extension going from lengthened positions. But, you know, we're not going with like, hey, just a sagittal plane or whatever. Like if we do lengthen long head or tricep, we're going into the as close to the actual physiological long length of that tissue. Um, and I think, especially if you're looking at multiple people, that kind of helps because if you go to what the physiological limit, nobody's trained, no, you know, nobody has a repeated bout effect for something that's a greater stretch than what the physiological maximum is. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, that, that, that's, that's a question I have too, is most of the time we're talking about just range of motion of the exercises that are being compared, right? We're not actually talking about the physiological lengths of these exercises or, or, the, or the muscles that are in these, these exercises, right? So like, um, when I look at how does this stuff probably apply out in the field? Like if you take a, take it any chest press that you do from a physiological length perspective, a, any, a dumbbell press is a lengthened partial for the pec because you, you, you're cutting off probably the short 40%. Um, and I'm curious if when, you know, when, when we say that like, all right, well, it seems to be that using on an on average longer muscle length seems to be more effective. Could you also just reword that as is like it seems to be that on average, just eliminating the short portion is the it, you you could basically you could change the wording and have to have the same outcome, and that's where it's like to me it gets interesting. I'm like, well, okay, is it that the longer part is more stimulating, or is it there's a a limiter that's being imposed by the short portion? Like that fatigue is just preventing the volume of stimulus that you can get in the more mechanically, you know, tension inducing. So like you could look at it as that one side is like a stronger stimulus or the other side is limiting just like you're able your participation because from a physiological perspective, like your cost of energy per unit of force produced, right? You have the worst economy in the short position, which is one of the reasons that we think that's like, that's great for beginners or people focusing on body comp because it's like, all right, that's kind of what we're trying to do is we're trying to stimulate the energy systems, books on nutrient partitioning, all those funny, fancy words or whatever. Um, but, you know, even for body comp people, just from a practical perspective, like that kind of helps people like have a little bit more of a perma pump during, you know, like nothing sucks more than when you're dieting and all of a sudden your muscles get all flat and you look, oh, whatever. So it's like including a few of those things kind of just like helps you stay a little bit more full. Uh, so it's like, like all these little coaches hacks that you can use for this stuff. But back on track when I'm looking at, okay, how do I use this information? I'm trying to, again, look at it as like, okay, with the tools that I have, how, how can I, how can I use this stuff? Um, and that's where it gets interesting. Like, well, do, is it avoiding the short? Is it doing the lengthened? Um, now you said that you know, if we're applying a model, you know, if we're, if I'm looking at applying a model and I'm just trying to reflect the research. I see a lot of conflicts in there, but what I look at is, is like, okay, I'm taking what we have in the applied research, but then I'm adding all the practicalities of the things that come with the gym. So take a, take a pause in the lengthened position, for example, the benefits of that beyond like, if there was a potential for a long muscle length would be like, what, like from a skill perspective, you know, or just a technique perspective, where are their values? And then I'm like, okay, if my goal is to get somebody to where they're actually able to load a lengthened partial heavier and work closer to failure, are there practical progressions of getting there? Like is a pause, like, you know, maybe that's not the most physiologically like best hypertrophy outcome version of doing this, 
But from a practical standpoint, is, is that the appropriate place to introduce somebody to just actually controlling those ranges and then progressing them to actually doing, you know, just straight up heavy lengthened partials? Because depending on the exercise, these are things that could either be seen as very safe and very easy or sometimes like a little bit more um, challenging. Looks like you guys both have things to say on that. So I'll just. Please. Sure. So those are good questions. I think there's a couple of things I want to touch on. First, with regards to injury, we don't really have a super solid understanding of what increases risk of injury during resistance training. I know we like to pretend like butt wink is going to snap your back and uh, some flexion in your back will instantly break your spine. But in reality, the risk factors during resistance training for injury are a lot less, a lot less well understood than commonly assumed. So certainly anecdotally, from what people have told me from my experience as well, I could see people perceiving lengthened positions to be relatively injurious, right? And to be fully fair, there is some research in people with existing pain, specifically with uh, non-specific chronic lower back pain. So actually my supervisor's done some research on this. He did a study on range of motion back in 2013. He took patients with non-specific chronic lower back pain through either partial range of motion or full range of motion training because resistance training actually seems to improve pain outcomes oftentimes in people with chronic pain. Um, and the reason why he was comparing partial range of motion to full range of motion is specifically because it seems like for a lot of people with chronic pain, lifting at either extreme of the range of motion, either at fully shortened or fully lengthened positions, seems to induce a bit more pain. So that might be a consideration, right? And actually, I've conducted both an interview study and a survey study in a survey study in recreational training is training for muscle hypertrophy and strength, and an interview study in competitive strength and physique athletes and coaches. And it does seem like injury and pain management are common reasons for modifying range of motion, right? Like if, if the bottom position of the squat really hurts, and that's very possible for people with knee pain, then you may want to consider cutting out the length of position. But I think for injury prevention, the case is a lot more complicated or we don't have enough data yet to say for sure, oh, you want to avoid lengthened position or you want to really gradually transition into lengthened positions. In general, and this is an area of research I'm not super comfortable or familiar with, so I'll express that up front, it does seem like quick transitions from one workload to another or from one position to another without much ex exposure to those positions or to that workload may be problematic for um, causing injury. So in general, it may be worth gradually transitioning into a new training approach or new training volume or workload or what have you. And so I do see a case for gradually transitioning into more lengthened or even exclusively lengthened work for hypertrophy. What I'll say is that I think a lot of people overestimate how different it is to train with the full range of motion versus, for example, half the range of motion in a lengthened position, especially for exercises like, I don't know, a dumbbell fly where the bottom, the top part is kind of useless or has no tension anyways. And even to an extent for stuff like squats where, yeah, sure, the top half of the movement or the top third of the movement has some resistance, but it's not the most fatiguing part. And so if you've been squatting with full range of motion for a while, the shift from full range of motion to length and partials won't be that big. Now, that likely also means from a more principled approach that switching from a full range of motion to length and partials on those movements doesn't make a big difference for hypertrophy. So it's kind of a cash flow into where for the movements where you probably want to switch to a partial range of motion, it will take a bit more getting used to, like maybe some back work, maybe some side delt work, maybe stuff like that. Whereas for exercises or body parts that are commonly trained pretty well in a lengthened position, there's not probably that much point to switching to a lengthened partial necessarily, like a squat, 
or bench even to an extent. Um, but I'd say if you've been doing full range of motion or pretty long range of motion for a while, it's probably worth taking at least a few weeks to gradually, like let's say you want to do only latent partials, to gradually go from doing only full range of motion, maybe over the course of two to eight weeks, to doing exclusively latent partials. And certainly I don't think everyone training for hypertrophy needs to switch to only latent partials. It could be as simple as just emphasizing latent position somewhat. And I think a good approach could just be, hey, on exercises where it makes sense, maybe do lengthened partials instead of full range of motion. And that could be like 20% of your program, not 100%. I've, as you know, I've taken the approach uh, of almost exclusively doing lengthened partials with the exception of some powerlifting stuff over the past couple of months. Um, and it's been interesting, but I don't think everyone needs to do it. And again, to reiterate, the effect size we're talking about here isn't massive. Yeah, and to, to touch on that, it may be it may be worth, and again, this is in the context of people that you know are looking to to maximize muscle hypertrophy and are willing to make that that bet that my Milo alluded to earlier, uh, which makes sense because it's it's a small modification that you can make. But on exercises where previously uh, you, based on the standards for form that exist out there, um, you'd you'd stop before you exhausted the lengthened uh, part of that movement. For example, barbell rows, deficit bar barbell rows chest supported machine rows, lat pull downs, um, and even some curls as well, and even, even other exercises. But as Milo said, you know, on the bench rest and the squat, probably you, you'd be exhausting most of the lengthened work as well. That's somewhere uh, where I personally and with clients have advised them to, hey, if you're doing a, a, a barbell row or any kind of row, it may be worth trying to, to not stopping where you can't reach your chest anymore, but rather completing those few more reps at the end. Um, but if we were to take a, uh, to take five steps back and talk to the average individual who wants to gain a bunch of muscle and, and be, uh, and, and improve their physique and get stronger, pl pl placing some emphasis on the, the lengthened part of a, of uh, each rep makes sense. Uh, selecting a, a few exercises for each muscle group also makes sense. And then paying attention to the basics, i.e. volume and just execution uh, that, that would that would cover them so i'm just trying to to separate our context because the, the the listeners here are not the average individual who wants to to get bigger and stronger but they may be individuals who work with those uh, those people so i think things are again relatively simple for the average person and the takeaways are relatively simple my best practices you know th that we're putting out right now is is that if you're you're, you're trying to emphasize longer muscle lengths and you are either switching to a range of motion that is now novel or all of a sudden by eliminating the short portion in exercises, you know, like the back stuff that Pac just mentioned, um, you're now drastically increasing the potential loading. That's where then, then maybe you need to have a little, like a progression model built in where maybe you start with either easing off on the resistance profile or incorporating some pauses and then progressing into just straight length and partials there. Because if you've never, like, if you've never overloaded the length and position of a lat and then all of a sudden you just throw that in, you're the, the like, just the simple loading that you're using is going to jump by 30, 40, maybe even 50%, you know, in, in some cases, right? And that, that would be an unreasonable progression in any other, uh, any other standard, right? And then the same thing if, you know, if on top of this, you're also now introducing an exercise, like say you're switching from 
lat pulldowns to lat pull arounds where now you're getting a significantly like it's a novel muscle length right you know on top of that that's where i'm looking at okay if you're introducing a ton of novelty that to me is where like okay let's look at the practical means of progression in terms of skill coordination and and loading and getting there and that's like i don't think that everybody needs to like i don't think that there needs to be a fear-based mindset about that but if you're like if you're just like that's my best practices of like hey try this by all means you can progress out of it really fast but that may be your best approach yeah for sure and i really like what you said about the fear bit because i think it's not good to induce nocebo to people right and that's why rather than being overly cautious obviously i'm going to advise for some caution where the scientific evidence suggests if play is worth it like not switching instantly from a low workload to a super high workload or vice versa and so forth um with that said with the loading bit it's always difficult to know for sure because just more weight on the bar or more weight on the stack etc doesn't necessarily correspond to more tension on certain parts of the joint because ultimately like external leverages matter um, and they change during range of motion. Like for example, during a, I don't know, during a pull down, like imagine the external leverage being different. And that's kind of the complication with these things. It's that, yeah, the weight on the stack may be heavier, but because the external leverages behave in a way that isn't fully represented in the literature yet, and we don't fully understand it for every single exercise, right? Like we don't have accurate models for external movement arms for every exercise that we do in the gym. Um, my suspicion is that if you can use substantially more weight, it's also because to some extent at least, obviously there's more factors involved, um, but to some extent the external movement arm is also lower, right? And so it's a combination of, it, the forces may be higher, but it's not just as simple as, oh, I can use 30% weight, therefore forces are 30% higher. It, it's probably substantially less than that. And that's kind of where yeah. actually, real quick, that's where back in the day, I think some people were making the case that partials were better because you could use more weight. That doesn't really make a ton of sense. Like certainly the research doesn't suggest that because actually in a lot of studies doing lengthened partials resulted in less weight being used. And you can kind of think about it like if you're leg pressing and you kind of take a second at the top, the last few inches of range of motion are essentially resting in a way. And so you can oftentimes do more weight and or more reps with full range of motion lengthened partials. And so the weight involved during lengthened partials or partials in general versus during a full range of motion likely isn't the thing causing a difference on hypertrophy. I would say, yeah, the external moment arm and relative to the internal for that target tissue, um, there's going to be variance there. But I'm also looking at this from a system, like from a system perspective, right? So just because the target tissue may have a mechanical advantage there, and that's what's actually allowed for the greater loading, right? You're also now like, as a whole kinetic chain, you're now just stabilizing a greater load in that relative position. So when I'm looking at coordination and all that stuff, it's like, there's a lot of variables to consider. So even if I know exactly like, well, yes, we have the leverages here to be stronger. It's still that like, okay, now this position, now this person is moving a larger mass with more momentum. And so just the stability challenge, like, you know, you, you guys, you guys trained, right? Like if you're working with a lighter load and a heavier load, there's just sometimes there's just changes to how you're going to brace and, and all of those things, you know, that, that, that are going to change with that. So it's, I'm looking at this as like just setting the person up to be as successful as possible. And there's no limit to how fast you can progress, you know, once you start doing that, right? Like, so that's kind of my, my take is, is like, all right, let's, let's put the person in a position so that the technique and the skill component is going to be able to progress as fast as possible and not throw them in a situation where all of a sudden the loading or whatnot is now going to cause us to have to regress and then progress again. I'm like, Hey, 
you know, let's start in a spot where we know he can be very successful, especially from the psychological perspective of working with the client. The last thing that you want to do is throw them in an exercise where they don't feel like they can perform it well. You want to basically set them up for success and make them feel like they're doing a good job. They're, you know, they're in control, they're safe. And if they progress really fast, that's only going to have a positive psychological outcome with that then versus like actually putting them somewhere and they're like, oh, actually you suck at this and we're going to have to, you know, progress this backwards. That's one of our most common uh, coaching uh, practices, the you suck method, where a client just gets a text that says you suck, and then we block them and just expect payment. That seems to work really. Like it gets them fired up and they're like, no, I'll prove you wrong, Pac, and Milo, because, you know, we're one person. But yeah. Actually, let's talk about the Pedrosa study first, right? So that in that one, um, the length and partial had the best outcome in hypertrophy. Uh, but the very group was not far behind and i believe in it was at least insignificantly better uh for each uh for each muscle the lateralis in one and the uh rectum in another at one particular length uh and it outperformed the full range of motion group uh at every measurement site uh and when it comes to the strength perspective it had the best outcome i believe out of all of the of the variations um and so when I'm looking at that, I'm like, well, there's a lot of ways you could look at it, right? Was it really that most of the hypertrophy was coming from half of the volume of work so that like by splitting up the volume between half of a length and partial and half of a short and partial, just half the volume of the length and partial is what was driving those results. Um, and that it actually only takes a small amount of short position work to get the subsequent strength benefits to go along with that. Um, or is there some sort of synergistic? I mean, all of these things I know we don't have answers for, um, but I'm curious if, you know, what your guys' thoughts are on that in terms of like, well, does this is this evidence that maybe you shouldn't just do only length and partials? Is there some benefit to still working either the short range or full range from just to like, hey, if I'm thinking hypertrophy over years, if I can throw in a little bit of short stuff and that improves my strength, that probably can't be a bad thing, right? So what are your thoughts? Yeah. So first off, I want to say that the Pedrosa study is fucking cool. Um, next to the Mayo light curl study, remember that one? Next to that one, which was incredibly consistent in showing that, hey, training a muscle group at lower lengths seems to be good for hypertrophy. Because not just the hamstrings that were longer in the seated light curl condition grew more than the lying light curl condition, but the knee flexors that were longer in the lying leg curl condition, like the gracilis and sartorius, I believe, they grew more in lying leg curl condition. So it was incredibly consistent in terms of the findings, almost too consistent, you know, bit, bit suspicious. Uh, I'm joking, honestly. Um, but this study was very cool, the Pedrosa study. In terms of strength, you rightly pointed out that using half the volume in the shortened position and half the volume in the bottom position seem to be actually potentially better for strength improvements than doing the full range of motion or doing just the bottom or just the top. And actually, that seems to be a somewhat consistent finding across the range of motion and strength adaptation literature, where there's about three or four studies now um, looking at comparing a full range of motion to a variable range of motion, which could be like some shortened partials and some lengthened partials, could be like a range of motion that's periodized over time. Like one study had people uh, squat with super shallow squats at first and then gradually increase the range of motion throughout the intervention. And actually, in general, when you look at those studies, three or four studies now, it's kind of the same situation as with length and partials in a way, 
and it kind of makes sense in light of how a lot of power of this and strong men tr actually train is that most of the time doing a variable range of motion so kind of a combination of four range of motion and partials or various partials seems to result in similar or slightly better strength adaptations as just doing a four range of motion so that's pretty consistent it's kind of the same situation as like in partials where it's relatively consistent but there's just not a lot of studies out yet so you could experiment with it and i think most palpists kind of instinctively do you know doing some close grip doing some wide grip uh doing sometimes partials as well like split presses or what have you it's kind of how a lot of strength athletes train already now with regards to hypertrophy you are right in saying that the variable range of motion group did get comparable rectus femoris and vast lateralis hypertrophy as the length and partials group um, but I will say that in general, magnitude of effect was a bit larger in the latent partials group. Um, it is interesting to see absolutely that the variable range of motion group saw approaching or near the same hypertrophy adaptations. I think you're onto something with saying that it's probably due to the fact that half their volume was performed that latent position. And it does hint very, very subtly at the existence of a dose response relationship between how much of your training should emphasize the latent position versus how much of your training doesn't need to. Now, the fact that with 50-50, you still saw benefit to latent partials, and also the fact that we don't have many studies looking at a variable range of motion on hypertrophy compared to latent partials, in fact, I'm pretty sure that's the only one, um, makes me a bit reluctant to say there's definitely those response relationship. You only need 60% of your work to be latent partials or latent emphasized. Um, but it does hint at the fact that that might be the case, and I think it's an interesting area of research I'd like to see more stuff in. Yeah, I think there's probably, like, intuitively, like, just in training, there definitely seems to be a point um, where, like, I just can't do, like, like performance of those just drops off. Uh, if, if, like, anybody that's played around with extreme range of motion or resistance profile, like, it's, it's a different type of fatigue. Um, and we, we've done some presentations on this of just showing that, like, just by shifting the resistance profile and whatnot, you can show that, like, all right, when you get to failure, like, if it's a short position exercise, you can get a partial that's like, you know, 80, 90% and then continue with like dozens and dozens of partials. For something that's very lengthened bias, it's like maybe, maybe if you have a couple partials or maybe you just get pinned or whatnot. So like from a physiological failure perspective, I'm looking at that. So um, I, I, this study just makes me curious, um, but it also kind of, you know, puts me in a situation where I'm like, I think that what we're currently doing is probably, it, it doesn't make me want to change that approach of what we're doing like this 70, 30, when I'm thinking of like, you know, best practices for our clients of like, okay, we're doing that, but we're probably, you know, in terms of the way I'm applying this is I'm also applying longer absolute muscle lengths on top of this with like our exercises are like, okay, it's longer length and we're, we're looking at resistance profiles. And so I'm already like, I'm kind of going past the, you know, what the research suggestion is on one end of the spectrum and then I'm also then going on the other so I'm kind of like playing on on both sides a little bit with with our current application um but this like when I'm looking at this that means like okay that it probably is at least isn't hurting to have that in there especially when you know at least from our perspective looking at it it doesn't seem that adding those short positions seems to add a significant amount of fatigue uh at all um and I would argue even in some instances like we've done things where you know, you kind of look like kind of like a DUP thing where it's actually it's like, OK, on a one day, I'm going to do the, the a short position more like, you know, short rest or whatever, like almost like what would be more of a energy system training thing, like a Durant, Vince Durand to set, you know, where it's like 
eight sets of eight 30 seconds in the short position and your return to force like is like 24 hours later you can produce the same amount of force you have almost no soreness um and sometimes what we actually seem seem to seem to see is that actually then when you go do your length of work it's almost like the progressions are actually becoming a little bit faster my theory is is that maybe there's a little bit of like you know we're getting a little bit of glycogen supercompensation or whatnot or we're increasing my mitochondrial density over the course of the meso and stuff more than we would have or, or whatnot but there seems to be like maybe this small uh potentiation effect or maybe it's all placebo and people are just going into the workout a little bit more pumped than they normally would and be like okay i look more like huge jack man today so i'm gonna be able to push a little bit more weight i don't know um you have some thoughts yeah i mean the reality of of our role i'm not gonna become too james steely here but the, the reality may be that you know, as Milo said, even with range of motion, small effect size between four and or the of of the effect of range of motion in general on hypertrophy and strength. So, it is likely that a lot of the the, the minor adjustments that we're making and some bets that we're placing are not really yielding much more uh, in terms of hypertrophy, but because they are getting people to buy into training hard and being consistent. At the end of the day, that's what's getting them to to see results. So there's a fine line between like similarly with myself and Milo, we wouldn't uh, necessarily tell a client, "Hey, don't do this," because we don't have any direct evidence that this will be beneficial if it's not anything too extreme, right? And if it gets them to enjoy training more and uh, feel a certain muscle more or whatever placebo effect there may be there. But at the same time, we do recognize that the end goal is consistency, proper execution, being relatively smart with exercise selection, and an intensity of effort that, we, which even even with the intensity of effort part, there is a small asterisk next to it. But overall, again, placing more emphasis on some of the basics without being reductionists per se, and understanding that there, you know, you're not going to tell everyone, hey this range of motion, these three exercises, and just add five pounds or 10 pounds a week. But at the same time, being a bit cautious with, hmm, okay, do you want to do your lat pulldowns this way or that way? Uh, okay, that way works better. Uh, it may be suboptimal on paper if we sit down with you and actually like break it down. And yeah, but does it really matter? Hmm, probably not. Milo? Nothing? Yeah. One point I wanted to make briefly on the Pedrosa study, actually. Oh. I know you wanted to discuss the pitfalls of um, potentially just doing lengthened partials or kind of the limitations of where applying this research might actually lead you. So I know you prefer, for example, doing about 70% of lengthened work, 5% shortened work. And one of the claims I've seen made around one of the potential downfalls of partial range of motion as a concept is that it may result in non-uniform hypertrophy, or in other words, that you don't hypertrophy the whole muscle pretty well, right? And in this study, for example, right, the variable range of motion group on paper, if that were the case, should see better hypertrophy in certain regions, hopefully, than either the shortened partials or lengthened partials only group. However, that wasn't really the case. Across pretty much all sites, similar or slightly better hypertrophy was seen for the lengthened partials group, at the very least, there were no major differences in the sense that you think, oh, lengthened partials really don't grow this one area of a muscle compared to doing both shortened partials and lengthened partials. And this is a broader trend in the evidence that I've seen, is that 
you know, a couple of years ago, and not to name drop, but I remember, for example, um, Mike saying that partial range of motion might be a bit worse on account of its inability to stimulate the whole muscle. Um, that doesn't really seem to pan out. If you look at all the regional hypertrophy data following longer muscle length work specifically, it seems to result in relatively uniform hypertrophy, both in more proximal sites and more distal sites. Whereas specifically shortened work, like shortened partials or shortened isometrics and stuff, those actually seem to result in non-uniform hypertrophy. They seem to hypertrophy more proximal sites pretty well, but they don't seem to hypertrophy distal sites that well. And so that is more so a limitation, I think, of shortened partials, or like, for example, the shortened partial group in this study, than it would be for lengthened partials. And so I think, like a few years ago, if you told me I'm doing 70-30, or like a year ago, 70-30 lengthened shortened because of regional hypertrophy, I would have been like, yeah, maybe that makes sense. But now having read literature and more literature coming out, I think that that isn't a reason to want to include the shortened position. There are other reasons, for sure, but I don't think that would be one of them. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not looking at the short position as being like, hey, this is a way to get more of the more proximal uh, muscle hypertrophy. To be honest, in terms of my confidence, the regional aspect of this is one of the lowest, um, and maybe this is a good, you know, transition into talking about fascicle lengths and sarcomere like because we're looking at these studies you know when we're looking at it over the time you know over this period of time and we're seeing this distal bias to the hypertrophy um but you know in the real world we don't see people walking around where just the distal end of their bicep is just like sticking up like an inch higher than the rest of it so like my my confidence in us understanding the morphological changes over a longer time period is like really really low Right. Cause it's like, okay, like, I mean, I don't know the longest one of these that we have, it is, you know, it's like in the 12, 16 week range, I think. Right. Um, you know, and you guys are doing, is it six months? The, uh, the, the one that you are, I can't remember how long. Unfortunately, it's not six months. The good news is that we're going to be collecting a lot of data. So we're trying to get about 50 to hundred participants or more total. Right. So what you probably read is like, we'll be running data collection for that study for one or two years across five sites at least. We've got uh, two universities in the UK, one in Greece, one in New Zealand, one in the US. Um, but the intervention itself is eight weeks long, but it's in the context of an actual training program, right? So in most of these studies, they use one exercise. In this study, we're using a full training program, like five or six exercises per day, three days a week for the upper body. So it's quite like similar to how you train in real life. Um, and in trained lifters specifically, so in people who've been training for at least three years. So hopefully... You know, this study won't tell us about the long-term adaptations to lower muscle length training. That's not what this set out to do. And th that's a very difficult study to run. I recently finished the data collection for a study on range of motion in calves. And over a semester, I was in the lab 405 times, right? So over like three months. And that's a lot of work. It's very tedious. It's a lot of work. And so when, you're, when people speak about long-term studies, intervention studies, that shit takes a lot of effort by a lot of people. Um, and so that's why you don't see them. Um, but that study should hopefully provide some more generalizable data and answers as to, okay, well, what about train lifters? What about in the context of a full program? Uh, what about for, broadly speaking, more than just the biceps and triceps, you know? Um, so that's what we're trying to do there. And I think pack some stuff to say as well. Yeah, because um, aside from looking at whole body hypertrophy via different methods, so that depends on the university. So we have a bot foot here. Others have a DEXA. We're also doing ultrasounds on biceps and triceps. Uh, but 
we will get a chance to look at the effect of uh, partials versus full ROM on enjoyment, adherence, perceived effectiveness, uh, perceived um, risk injury, uh, and at the same time, just by looking at you know uh, potentially dropouts and uh, some other qualitative feedback that uh, we've included in the study, we can look at hey, in the real world, if you take somebody and put them on and a quote unquote very unorthodox only partials program, uh, high volume, very high effort. So this is something that Milo has already, like he's, he's taken part in the study. And Milo is one of the hardest training individuals I know. He's the type of guy that trains his legs. So I'm not sure what, what's up with that. But uh, joking aside, he he went through it and it, it's just an upper body program. And he, even his feedback was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is quite hard. Uh, and it will be interesting to see whether individuals like ourselves um, how they do, whether they make gains, but also how this pans out in practice. And of course, a non-supervised study has its limitations, but at the same time, the triangulation of the in-lab data that we have, some of the qualitative uh, work that Milo is doing now that will be out soon, so the interviews and so on and so forth, and that big study, so having a sample of 100 plus people, which is very uncommon in you know, in trained individuals and long-term resistance training studies, I think the triangulation of all that evidence all that data will allow us to have a pretty clear idea of what's happening uh, as far as, uh, you know, partials versus uh, full ROM goes. Now, you guys have been focused mostly on the applied side, um, but some, like, the fascicle-like thing was one of the, the things that was brought up as a potential mechanism. And along that theory, the criticism was is that, well, this type of hypertrophy is just going to wear off, you know, after a certain amount of amount of time. That was the, the, I think that that was, that was the rationale of like, okay, this is just a change in fast, fascicle length. And that happens at the beginning. And so that the long-term benefits of this would, would, would come off. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys have a, a thought on that. I mean, I posted a thing looking at, I believe we only have one human study looking at change in fascicle length and it appeared to be that the mechanism was a longer resting sarcomere length um rather than actual additional sarcomeres in series um i don't think that means that we would never see sarcomeres in series but i think that means that we probably don't have the evidence to be making such conclusions yeah absolutely so as you mentioned the vast majority of the evidence we have is in animal models how well that generalizes to human models is relatively unclear and depending on the exact area of evidence can be a lot more tenuous than you think. Um, now, a few of the studies we have on range of motion have measured fascicle length, I'm mistaken, but not many. That's the point to keep in mind. And the other important thing to keep in mind is that even when relatively more proximal sites are measured, like for example, 30% of muscle length, 40% of muscle length, 50%, and also more di more distal sites, like 70%, etc. There is still an increase in muscle thickness, for example. And especially for more proximal sites, that wouldn't necessarily be explained by an increase in fascicle length. So the increased hypertrophy at relatively more proximal sites, I think is difficult to explain via fascicle length being the only operating mechanism here. And more importantly, the assumption that fascicle length is a mechanism at play here is vastly unsubstantiated like we just don't have any direct evidence on the topic um and so before i'm confident in saying and that's kind of why for the time being i'm more focused on general training principles because ultimately a lot of this research is applied 
than a model is because we don't have much mechanistic data that would allow us to form a functioning model of how range of motion and muscle length influence hypertrophy directly. Yeah. Um, the other, like having gone through the, uh, the, the information that those guys provide, like the, the argument was that the, well, if the fascicle length was increasing, then the resting sarcomere length would shorten and that would then cause like an increase, um, in muscle thickness. Um, not, that's not, that's not my perspective. I'm just, I'm just repeating what their argument is, but I think that the one piece of human evidence we have actually is in direct conflict. If the adaptation seems to be a longer end from a, from a mechanist mechanism guy myself, um, like, look, you know, looking at these things, um, it seems to me that that would be the more appropriate mechanical adaptation to that stress, right? Because that would be a situation where you would actually be able to use more of those paths. Like you, you, it would be an energy efficient way of being able to produce more force, um, which seems like a more like evolutionary driven adaptation than a adaptation that would actually put you at a lower efficiency of force production. And like, it seems to me, it's like that. Why would, why would your body adapt in a way that could potentially make you worse at longer muscle legs? I think the, the rationale is like, oh, it's a, the protect, like a protective mechanism providing, um, more, you know, more length for the fascicle, um, so that it wouldn't be getting stretched as much. But everything that I know from the way, you know, we, we, had, we do go through adaptions on this level seems to all be mostly driven from an energy, like there has to be an energy based thing to pretty much drive the adaption at some, at some place. And so that's what makes me think if anything, it would be the opposite. And so having heard said, uh, claims and having listened to said podcast, um, but not exactly remembering. So there is this hypothesis, uh, or at least this criticism slash skepticism placed forth that is not really backed by any direct evidence, but how does that, because I, I don't remember, I'm asking if you remember, what was the implication of that on the practical applications of the range of motion? Like how, how did that change anything? Do you, do you remember Bilo or? Yeah. So the practical implications were that in a lot of these studies, they're relatively short in duration and fascicle length increases are, according to them, very short lived. So like you maximize your fascicle length adaptations after six or 12 weeks or whatever. And so lower muscle length training or uh, partial range of motion at lower muscle lengths would only be beneficial when for about six to 12 weeks in that sense. And for a lot of these with studies comparing a full range of motion to a um, partial range of motion at lower muscle lengths, the results are not really a byproduct of fascicle length adaptations or greater hypertrophy in general, but also more so a better match between the muscles, um, the muscles strength curve essentially and the resistance curve of the exercise. So some of the biceps exercises, for example, they just say that, yeah, the biceps uh, thickness increased more in the length and partials group because they had better leverage at those angles. So it's kind of like, it's a kind of cop out, to be honest, in a couple ways. One, it's either, okay, the adaptations to length and work are very short lived because fascicle length, and there's not much direct human evidence on that. Or it's a better match in the strength curve to the resistance curve of the exercise, and that's why they grew more. There's kind of not a study that haven't explained away in some very convenient way with not much direct evidence behind their claims. And so, yeah, to me, it kind of just 
seems as though they're trying to fit a model around their biases. And I think that kind of speaks to a couple of caveats. The first caveat is don't try and create a model that you're not willing to modify too soon. And the second is um, evolutionary thinking, for example, has its merits, for sure. But I think when like there's any direct evidence to the contrary, when there's not much direct evidence yet, I think that can actually put you off base a little bit. Like it can make you too confident in your conclusions too soon. Because you can create a mechanistic or an evolutionary rationale around a lot of things, like for example, meat eating, right? Like how meat eating is the only healthy thing when in reality it's a bit more complicated than that, like the teeth structure, what have you. Um, so yeah, I think just two caveats and I think I listened to the podcast episode and certainly I'm open to being wrong about these things. You know, uh, I think maybe in a few years time we'll have more data on vascular life in humans, we'll have more data about longer term adaptations to long muscle length training. It could be the case that they're right. I just think at the moment there's a lot of confidence being placed in their claims without much evidence. There was a study cited though that was that had five whole people. I remember it was funny. So okay, obviously I, I agree with Milo with the, the the last disclaimers that you know, hey, if in ten years it turns out that that this was, you know, this was the right hypothesis and it's proven, you know, more power to to them for calling it, and we are uh, we were wrong. But uh, at the same time, it was funny to hear about a very well controlled study that. Uh, did everything right, but at the same time included five people. And, and like, we often forget that in other fields, even the big sample sizes of our field are considered, you know, somewhat laughable uh, when we talk about, you know, 12 and 20 people. And when you are exposed to statisticians and people who are very well versed in statistics, which is also something that doesn't happen much in our field, uh, then you realize the Dunning-Kruger Valley of Despair uh, that we are actually living in it's not a nice cave it's actually the valley of despair because there's we have to be very cautious with how we interpret a lot of the data that's out there and anyways i'm not gonna take a dark turn we'll come back to simple life and long muscle lengths versus full rom long muscle lengths go Woo! so we we just uh we had discussed in our, the dm chats uh that um we think that there's a there's an there's a resistance requirement across this. Like in um, there was the study that compared the preacher curl to the incline curl that I think is a good representation of this. Of that, like if you're training at long muscle lengths, we still need to have adequate resistance. Like going there with a resistance curve that's dropping off probably is it nulli nullifying the, those benefits. Um, and I mean the main reason I bring that up is is that. If we were going to do T-shirts instead of Team Full ROM, would the correct shirt be Team Long and Hard? Because that's a I good think... point. Yeah, and certainly the evidence we have suggests that getting the absolute longest muscle length in your training isn't the most important part, and that kind of goes against the another uh, theory or hypothesis put forth by uh, the CNP show, not to be named in full. Um, that passive tension is mostly responsible for these adaptations following long muscle length training. But if that were the case, then you would see that... Um, and there's also, like, there was this weird uh, tangent on the podcast that, well, passive tension increases as muscle length increases, but it only matters if you can also activate it, which seemed a bit unsubstantiated in humans especially. Um, but either way, because generally passive tension increases as muscle length increases, if passive tension truly were the mechanism at play, You'd expect to see that with the longest muscle length exercises, 
that's where you see the biggest benefits of lower muscle length training. Instead, based on a recent study by Zabalita Corda and colleagues, that I actually peer-reviewed before it published, I think it's not published yet actually, I think that only the preprint is out, I've seen the finished version, um, when they compared doing preacher curls, where you're training your biceps at relatively shorter muscle lengths, but with a lot of tension being placed on the biceps in those bottom positions, to the, the incline curl, where technically, because your biceps long head specifically is a shoulder flexor, it's a bit more lengthened, but there is not much active tension requirement at the bottom, so there's less tension at the bottom. Basically comparing shorter muscle lengths slightly with more tension in that relatively lengthened position to absolutely lower muscle lengths, but a lot less tension in that position. It seems like because the preacher core group grew a bit more, um, it's not really about getting the absolute longest muscle length, it's more about getting a good deal of tension in a relatively long muscle length. Now, is it possible that getting a good deal of tension in the longest absolute muscle length is actually better than just getting a good deal of tension at relatively long muscle lengths? Potentially, we don't have the evidence on that yet, and that's the important limitation of the evidence as it stands, is that very few of the studies, except for a few actually, the recent Cassiano study, in my experience, did train the length and partials group and the four range of motion group at pretty deep positions. But most of the studies from the squat, for example, in most of these squat studies, comparing like a four range of motion squat to a partial squat, the four range of motion squat is like parallel. You know, a lot of people you've seen the evidence-based community right now doing four range of motion squats are doing squats where their butt cheeks touch the floor, you know, uh, which is probably a good thing for hypertrophy, but we don't have direct evidence saying that training at the absolute lowest muscle lengths is necessary, just that training at pretty low muscle lengths with a pretty good amount of tension is beneficial for hypertrophy over doing the opposite. So yeah, long and hard. Long and hard. And we should, um, uh, you could make some nice like, uh, edgy t-shirts and, and, and hats with, uh, you know, a barbell shaped like a penis or something like that. Hey, um, uh, um, NDA, um, sign it. I don't know. I'll get a claim it somehow. This is our idea. Uh, terms of condition of life. Yeah, I I honestly think that shirt would 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 sell better um, for reasons well beyond the science, obviously. Um, so the other aspect of that that they that they were building on, which you mentioned, was the neural mechanical matching part, and that's essentially the you know the muscles internal um, moment arm versus the the moment arm or the resistance profile of the exercise that's being done. Um, now. One thing that I wanted to put out there, uh, because this is, I think, is a big limitation in terms of, you know, communicating science, um, is referencing studies that you don't necessarily actually quite understand or interpret well, or don't understand the extreme limitations of these. Um, so, like for instance, uh, there was, uh, like, there's this, um. There's a study going around, the, an Ackland study from 2008, where they were looking at the moment arms for a bunch of the shoulder muscles, um, and they were doing it with the tendon excursion method, which basically means that they took a severed arm and they attached a bunch of nylon strings to it, and then they put it on like a little rotating wheel, and they rotated around and measured the angles of the strings, and then they, you know, basically gave a, you know, moment arm plot. Um, but they didn't use a rib cage. They didn't have the actual orientation of the clavicle. Like, there's a ton of limitations to this. Um, and basically that, you know, that study was cited as like, here's the absolute, like, truth of how you should train these muscles. Um, and it's a 2008 study that is also in a 2019 uh, meta-analysis where they actually, you know, they post up the results of that study with a bunch of other 
you know, studies, at least uh, one or two of them using a very similar study design. And you see there's a tremendous variation in the results that, you know, that they got in the different studies in terms of the moment arm plots to the point where sometimes two different studies will have a muscle having two different functions at a certain joint angle. One month, one muscle will have something as a flexor and one muscle or, or one study will have it as a flexor and one study will have it uh, as an extensor and whatnot. So when it comes to trying to apply this theory of what are the internal versus the external leverages, um, just this, this is just an area where there's one, there's not only a, a huge individual variance, um, but a lot of the data that we have is, is very, we'll say very inconsistent. Um, and modeling this stuff, which is something that I do is very, very difficult, right? Whether you're doing it like with a practical means similar to attendant, like we have a skeleton that we put just elastic bands on just to be able to illustrate these concepts, you know, to, to students so that then they can kind of get an idea. Um, it's just like, it's a very useful teaching tool. Right. But obviously it's like, okay, but the accuracy of what we're doing there is if anything, sometimes more accurate because I can actually move the scapula and I have an anatomical rib cage and, and whatnot. Um, but then when you look at doing this computationally with like OpenSim or looking at MRI studies that are trying to do this, like the limitation of the MRI is it's very hard to calculate the axis of rotation. And then just your, you know, the resolution you have to be specific to the tissue vector is, is very hard. With the computational model, it's very hard to actually account for the structures. Like you're very limited to like, well, if I'm looking at the lats, okay, I have to figure out how do I bake the thing, make the lats wrap around the rib cage, but then how do I keep the different divisions from like being able to stretch away from each other in an unrealistic way? Cause the lat is still one muscle. Like the divisions can't pull apart from each other and like slide up and down the spine. And then these muscles actually twist and wrap around like they, the, the lats come around the teres, especially the upper division. And so there's all of these things. So when I'm, you know, I believe that, you know, neuromechanical matching is probably, you know, a fairly valid principle um, when we're looking at activation, meaning that, yeah, the, it would make sense that the body would recruit the tissue with the greatest leverage. Um, but we don't necessarily always know what that is going to be in a given exercise, in a given individual, or in a lot of these exercises, they just exist in planes of motion that we don't even have any data on in the first place. But then the other thing is that doesn't necessarily mean that the highest like internal mechanical tension, like where these actual sensors are, is what's being affected by just simply that kind of change in percentage of muscle activation. Because if length is a property, right, if the passive portion is happening, well, that could be happening like in a given muscle that isn't, we'll say, isn't the one that has the greatest neuromechanical advantage, right? But if in this instance, it's at a longer length, it could be gaining efficiency through the passive forces, which could actually be increasing. It's like, it could be increasing the tension that matters for hypertrophy stimulus, even though another muscle as a whole might be producing a, just a little bit larger total force contribution. And I think that's, that's an important thing for people to understand is that the total like tendon to tendon force doesn't necessarily equal the actual mechanical tension force that matters in terms of hypertrophy stimulus, because like we don't just have a mechanical sensor on each end of the muscle and the more fibers that are contracting, the more growth, right? Like likely, you know, one of the, like the internal mechanisms for what's going on here, right, is we're, we're able to get more tension 
at a fiber level. That's why we can, you know, we can hypertrophy it with, you know, lighter loads, heavier loads. That's why proximity to failure and all these things probably combine on each other because all of these things are influencing how we get to that tension at a macroscopic level. So I think the two rebuttals I have on the neuromechanical matching thing is just one, we can't even accurately apply the principle. Like we can, we can, we can agree that the principle likely exists, but it's very hard to argue about exercises with this, right? Unless it's, unless they're ones where the, the, the leverages are very, very easy to calculate. And the other is, is that what we're looking at there might not even be significant to the actual stimulus that we're looking at. Like this principle might not necessarily be that directly correlative to the mechanical tension that's responsible for hypertrophy. For sure. I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. One, we don't have a ton of direct evidence looking at the effects of neuromechanical matching as a principle on hypertrophy. So it's unclear to what extent it influences hypertrophy and when or if it starts being influential and something worthy of consideration when applying a certain range of motion or choosing a certain exercise or another, right? For a given body part, like lats, right? Um, I'm pretty sure you mentioned this and actually I've heard of Andrew Vygotsky saying a similar thing that even though the leverage for lats above, say, 120 degrees is lower, it's not zero, you know? So you're not getting no lat training there. And it's very possible that actually the difference in your mechanical matching at the lats with, uh, above 120 degrees is not large enough to really substantially impact hypertrophy. So while on principle, absolutely cause a difference, we just don't have much direct data su suggesting that relatively small differences in your mechanical matching or in internal moment arms or what have you are going to play a role in meaningfully impacting hypertrophy in a certain range of motion versus another what have you. Now in extreme cases, and this is kind of we have to get speculative, I could see it making a difference. I think to kind of ground ourselves, it's useful to look at the direct data we have on it. And the only direct study I'm aware of on this concept is one performed by Stanisevsky and colleagues. Are you aware of the study? Uh, refresh me, because I'm terrible with names. Like, if sure. you tell me about it, I might remember it. But yeah, so, I, I am not one of those guys where when you tell me the name, I remember the study. If you tell me the design, I may remember it, though. Yeah, so they had participants perform a... Uh, standardized training program with either a camber that was designed to um, match the strength curve of the elbow flexors to the resistance curve, or one that provided constant tension. They mm -hmm. measured hypertrophy before and after, and it was eight weeks of training. And essentially what you saw is that, so in the group that was matching, that was presumably matching resistance profile to strength profile, it's called, mm -hmm. versus the group that had just constant tension throughout the whole range of motion on their machine, there were no differences in hypertrophy pre to post. So perfectly matching strength and resistance curve of an exercise versus just having a fixed resistance curve for an exercise didn't seem to influence hypertrophy meaningfully, at least over eight weeks in healthy male subjects, right? Does that mean that we should throw out the principle of neuromechanical matching entirely as it applies to hypertrophy? Probably not, right? Just one study of a short duration in with one exercise doesn't inherently mean that this principle is worthless and certainly makes a lot of intuitive sense. But I think it means that when we're talking about relatively small and difficult to actually ascertain differences in internal leverage, we shouldn't let those small differences dictate our whole decision-making when it comes to range of motion and exercise selection, especially when we have relatively more fruitful or substantive uh, fields of evidence like the range of motion evidence. Well, sure, if you really, really, really squint, 
you could just about come away from it saying that the principle of new mechanical matching explains all these differences. Now, this is a huge squint because, again, we have one study on this, and the study doesn't show any differences in hypertrophy. So it's, it's, it's a big ask. Uh, you could get away with that, but I think when we have a lot more studies looking at length and partials with sporing motion, and we don't have a great understanding for a lot of these exercises, what extent you know your mechanical matching was occurring, right? Then I think it's a very weak uh, interpretation of the results from existing literature. Um, I, I'm certainly open to in the future your mechanical matching becoming a more useful or substantiated tool for deciding what exercises to use. And maybe like you know maybe in the future you know it turns out for example that the um, lat pull downs that you perform this and you perform where you sort of only go to 120 degrees or so roughly if I'm correct I, I'm not wrong of um, for the lats to kind of emphasize the lats a lot more. Maybe that does turn out to be way better for hypertrophy with lats than doing full range of motion pull downs. But until then, I think, especially when interpreting a much more substantive body of evidence, like the range of motion evidence, I would rather rely on that and not try to explain away all the findings by this one mechanism that or principle that doesn't actually have much evidence backing it up, you know? So, um, the thing I would mention about the study comparing the uh, optimized exercise profiles, um, a huge limitation there is, is that the strength profile changes every single rep. So, like, if so, what, like, if if you if you put somebody on an isokinetic dynamometer and you have them do a single rep one, that doesn't reflect, like, because that's a maximum effort for the whole thing. So that strength profile doesn't reflect what you would have if you're now using a weight that you could lift eight times. Um, so automatically, like, you know, when it comes to these, you know, strength curves and force curves, like our ability to match them is is very, very low. Um, and as you fatigue, it, it changes. So, and the one principle that does seem to play is, is that the strength curve drops off faster in the short position than it does the length in position. So if you take a machine that's optimized for your strength curve, maximal effort in a, you know, a, a one RM isokinetic condition, that's actually going to end up being a shortened biased resistance profile when we're talking about actually doing that in a resistance training setting where we're performing multiple repetitions with a lighter load. Um, so that I like, so when I look at like utilizing resistance profiles, it's re it's less about actually how it matches the strength profile in the first rep and more about where you actually end up in terms of the fatigue right like what where do you actually accumulate you know the fatigue and where do, how does failure look like for that particular profile um because to me that's 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 reflective of what's going to happen you know or that what's the cumulative stress and stimulus from a set in a resistance training setting versus like, look, sure, if you could only, if like, if you're, if you're limited to only being able to do one rep of an exercise, then you probably want to make use of every inch of the range of motion possible. But in reality, when we're doing multiple reps, if we're looking at like, well, if I'm looking at the economy of how much force I could produce, if there's a place where I can produce a little bit more force and stimulus, I probably want maybe a profile where I'm not, you know, accumulating as much fatigue in the less stimulating portion. And a little bit more in the in the other portion and i think a partial range of motion is just a similar way of kind of getting at that that same thing so i'd see these two things kind of working in similar play um so i think that's one i don't think we like i don't think we have any good research on resistance profiles 
in general, like in terms of how we would actually apply them in the gym. So that study to me actually was actually comparing like a shorter biased fatigue situation uh, in terms of the balance profile, if anything. Um, that that that's kind of how I would how I would see that. Um, and we've done we've done tons of work on like how different resistance profiles and different range of motions affect fatigue in terms of you know maximum force production to certain joint angles or you know just literally how many partial reps you can do and all sorts of stuff like that. And it's this is a totally different um, experience when you're working with those different profiles. Um, no, I think you definitely make some good points, and I think it's not as simple necessarily as perfectly matching the strength curve and resistance profile will lead to optimized hypertrophy. And there is a lot of interplay between range of motion and the resistance profile, right? Where technically you could be performing a full range of motion. If there's no resistance through half of it, it's technically and functionally a partial, you know, like a 50% partial. Um, so it's difficult to say, and I think certainly more evidence would be cool to look at the principle of neuromechanical matching, not necessarily at this point as to whether it's a thing, um, but, well, a little bit as to whether it's a thing in humans, but more importantly, how it relates to adaptations. So seeing whether differences in your mechanical matching between different muscle groups actually lead to meaningful differences in hypertrophy over the course of 8 to 16 weeks, you know, that'd be interesting to see. And I think that's uh, an area where hopefully more evidence will come out. I remembered what I was going to say now. It was regarding the, the lat stuff. Um, so one is, like, this is a great example of problems with the neuromechanical matching as well is if you're looking at the lats and you're only looking at their moment for shoulder extension, um, potentially the lats primary function is not shoulder extension. Potentially it's actually management of the scapulothoracic motion or the, where the sternoclavicular joint is. So when, when, no matter how much shoulder flexion you go into, you actually still have a significant, you always have a significantly longer moment for the scapulothoracic joint, right? And that's something that, you know, regardless of what people say on Instagram, your your, your deltoid is not gonna depress your shoulder, um, neither is your teres or whatnot, um, and, and, and these types of things. So like, if, if you just say like, well, okay, if we use the neuromechanical matching and we only look at one joint rather than what is actually like the, you know, the total force, because it can't, your lat can't produce force at exclusively the glenohumeral joint right? Its force is always exhibited across both joints and it's all of the other muscles combined that end up with the, the net motion that we produce, right? So, um, and so our motions, we don't limit people to 120 degrees for lat. Um, what we do is we use like torso position to get to a longer relative muscle length before somebody goes through the, you know, the amount of flexion. Basically, because if you just flex up over your head, you could get to a longer lat muscle length than that, but now you're you're basically at the end range of the amount of elevation that you have. So by positioning the torso or coming around first, what we do then is we make it so that once you reach like the top portion of your flexion, that that's actually continuing to, you know, produce tension on the lat when you're at that range. We're not just getting to a joint end range and then it's like, well, you could, you could just rest there with minimal lat engagement versus if we go to a position where now it's actually lat tension that's limiting that joint range to me that's a better way of emphasizing you know tension in that in that position um so it's it's for us it's really about like getting people to where now once they go to their maximum amount of shoulder flexion like the lat tension is 
is still there in terms of managing the scapulothoracic motion. Um, and then when it comes to shoulder extension, like to be honest, like I honestly look at the lat more through the scapulothoracic motion than I do from a shoulder extension. If you want to take the neuromechanical matching argument, the teres major always has better leverage than the lats, you know, in terms of it's just got a more distal attachment, right? But then there's the complexity of like, well, the only way it works is it also has the corresponding coupling of the forces on the other side of the scapula. So this, like the shoulder joint is about as complicated as you can get from a, from a modeling perspective, right? So it, I think it's asinine to try and just isolate one joint where you have a ton of muscles going on and then try and make claims about a multi-joint muscle, right? Functioning across that, um, you know, this is where I, I really hope that you know, one of the, like the, this muscle length thing is one of the more important keys from a mechanics perspective, because it's, it's easier for me to design an exercise that gets us to a given length. And I can say confidently, like this muscle is adequately involved there in a, versus me trying to pick the hairs of the internal levers and like, well, this was coupling this way and that way. Like, you know, it, it'd be a much easier, you know, place for me to be from an exercise design standpoint if all I had to do was just like hey look this is how we get the muscle to a longer length and then here's how we execute that movement in that position here's the progressions of regressions that we can use versus having to fight with people of like well this study showed the internal moment arm here and this one was there and here's this EMG thing and that or whatever and we're all looking at you know slicings of you know hairs and we can't even tell if they're you know from the same head for sure I guess one question I'd have for you uh, would be to what extent do you think taking a task to momentary failure, like momentary concentric failure, would impact this, right? Because with neuromechanical matching, let's assume it's a, there's a bit of a dose-response relationship between how much tension needs to be produced at the last, for example, um, to be maximally effective for a set. If you were to take a pull-down to momentary muscular failure, even if the pull-down wasn't performed in a fashion as to hopefully make the lats reach failure by the end of the set if the set is taken to failure. Do you think the differences in um, neuromechanical matching between one technique and the, in the other, or one range of motion in another, for most compound exercises would be sufficient so as to cause a meaningful difference in hypertrophy provided the set was actually taken close to or to task failure? So the, the argument being that, you know, if we're going close enough to failure, everything that can participate is basically going to participate to a meaningful way. Um, I think there, there's a certain amount of truth to that, but I don't think that if it's an exercise that for whatever reason, it's not mechanically inclined for that tissue, it still won't be to the same magnitude as an exercise that was. And the other thing is I don't, I wouldn't consider that equal dosage. So I would look at it as like, okay, of the reps that you did, you get, so when we look at when we look at compensation in an exercise, whether it be a bench press or even a single joint movement, right? What we tend to see is the the amount of comp compensation amongst the synergist comes up as you approach fatigue, right? But if we take an exercise where we're able to position or get to a, a situation where that tissue is being preferentially recruited, right? It's higher for a higher volume of like for a great a greater portion over the whole set so yes i would say like yeah you even if you do crappy exercises if you're taking them close to failure 
that's kind of like you're like, hey, I'm going to make sure everything that does this is getting some stimulus. But is that the same volume of stimulus as you would have gotten if it was better? I would say no, it's, it's going to be a smaller dosage. So that would mean that in order to get the same effect where you'd want it, it would then require like more set volume. Like you would need you would need more volume of that, right? And so to me, one, that's not necessarily good from an efficiency standpoint, and two, maybe not necessarily good from a specificity standpoint, right? You could talk about that from through a physique lens, or you could talk about that through a fatigue lens of like, look, I'm having to create all this extra fatigue in these other areas because I have basically I'm having to climb over these things to get to the stimulus where I want it. So in principle, yeah, everything that can help is going to help more as you get closer to failure. Um, but I think basically you're you're being inefficient with how much stimulus you're getting over the course of the set. Yeah. So from a physique perspective, I can actually absolutely see the case. Like if a physique competitor really has a certain lagging area, yeah, you probably don't want to do exercises that target everything at the same time. You actually want to target something specifically, right? Like I think you've talked about the the glute bridge or the hip thrust before. Um, now, that's kind of where I'm at with neuromechanical matching in a given exercise for different muscle groups, where the research on proximity to failure and muscle hypertrophy kind of suggests that training to failure isn't strictly necessary to get close to or optimize hypertrophy. And so I think as long as an exercise takes a muscle group close enough to failure, even if, for example, let's say the terrace major reaches failure before the lats do, and let's say, for argument's sake, the lats are two or three reps in reserve when you take the set to failure still, right? Like they could do two or three more reps um, if you could somehow do more reps than after you reach failure. The research suggests, from what I've seen at least, and this isn't my area of expertise, but from the meta-analysis recently performed by um, Raphael and colleagues, that you don't really need to train to failure or even within a couple reps of failure to maximize hypertrophy stimulus. And so I think that for a lot of compounds, yeah, on principle, if you want to optimize the stimulus for a single muscle group, or if you want to target specific areas, you definitely want to consider your mechanical matching. But if you're looking to optimize hypertrophy across a variety of muscle groups, just because, like in the case of the pull-down, the lats don't have the best neuromechanical matching for that movement, doesn't mean they won't get close to or even optimal hypertrophy from that movement. So that's kind of the point where I... That's where, why with neuromechanical matching, until we have more studies directly kind of showing that it influences hypertrophy in these ways, even when relatively small differences in neuromechanical matching occur, until then, I think it has relatively smaller practical implications for how it influences hypertrophy compared to, for example, the range of motion research. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> just to, just to make, make my, put my voice out there as you guys had a nice back and forth there. But yeah, I agree with with Milo on that. Uh, but I agree also with his point on hey, when working with physique competitors or highly advanced um, competitive athletes who are after those trivial gains that are not may not be meaningful for the average or for myself, uh, but for them that extra one percent, zero point five percent, whatever percent hypertrophy on the lat that may actually make a substantial difference if they're competing at the highest level. Then I think it's worth because. Um, it's worth spending that extra time because that extra time is not really that much extra time or extra effort. But for most people, if you are not being an absolute dick uh, for the, the laugh, to put it scientifically, with your exercise selection being very close to momentary failure, so the point where you are attempting another concentric repetition and you can't perform it, if you're 
very close to that. And you're also paying attention to long muscle lengths. My bet would be on, it's likely that, hey, there's not that much of an effect um, or any, if any. My my suspicion, so w one, with, the, with what we have in terms of like comparing failure to non-failure, like it seems like that this is a pendulum that keeps kept swinging around, right? That's just the reality of it. Um, and, you know, so I think everybody's general consensus is, is it doesn't have to be there, but there is a certain degree of, you know, effort that, that's needed, um, et cetera. Um, but we don't have on any, pretty much on any topic, whether it be long muscle lengths or neuromechanical matching, we don't have a research on the more complex movements. And if anything, this is where I would actually think like, so stuff around the shoulder, that's where I'm like, okay, that's actually probably where this would matter the most. When we're looking at, you know, these studies where we're looking at squats, so we're looking at elbow flexion, right? Like it's like all the quads extend the knee, like none of them have a drastically different function, right? Like I can get into the nuances of like, well, hey, you know, we have, you know, the lateralis has a connection into the glute med, so there's like a fascial thing there and the rectum crosses the hip and, you know, it's going to get some length change. And then we have some slightly different pulls on, you know, the, the actual patella. Like those those small nuances probably matter more in the orthopedic realm, um, and maybe a small amount in like the elite physique realm. But it's to me, it's a very different situation once we get up to hip and shoulder mechanics, where now we have muscles that basically are pulling in very different directions, or they're working with different coupling forces and stuff like that. Where it's like, okay, now even though these things could be synergistic here, they have drastically different actions you know, at a different joint and whatnot. And that's where I feel like the, not, not just neuromechanical matching from a, you know, internal leverage perspective, but also just from a coordination perspective and stuff, that's probably where we would see a greater magnitude of difference. Um, and so potentially that's why maybe we don't see it as much because yeah, if you're doing, you know, if you're doing leg extensions or you're doing squats, like you have your quads to extend the knee, there's really you don't have, you know, like nothing else is there and none of them have a function that very much deviates from the other. But if we're looking at pulling muscles, right, you have the lats that are depressors of the scapula. And then if you're using teres and posterior deltoids, for example, those couple with the rhomboids and the traps, which are literally going to pull the scapular thoracic joint in a different direction. So that's where it's like, okay, we could probably see some very different, like a much bigger difference in recruitment in a complex joint like that, right? Because it, you would end up fighting yourself a lot more, but like the VMO and the lateralis aren't going to fight each other a lot as you're approaching failure in knee extension, right? But potentially, you know, your posterior delt working with your rhomboid versus your lower portion of your lat could have a very antagonistic pull. And that's where, you know, like you have some positions where if you kind of shoot in the middle, that's actually like, hey, these things could actually work synergistically because their poles cancel each other out. But it also then says, well, if I go in one extreme or the other, that's probably going to have a more drastic shift than what we would see at a, a single joint. And that's what that's what we find on EMG um, and looking at nears, like looking at you know muscle oxygenation and stuff like that. Is you know we tend to see a big effect there. Um, but you know, like for instance, we have tested tons of different quad stances and whatnot. And you're not able to get a very significant difference in recruitment of the quadriceps using 
you know, different stance widths and whatever, and different, you know, pendulums versus leg press and, and whatnot. But then once we get up to the shoulder, all of a sudden it's like, now I can start to get these drastic differences. No, for sure. And I think a lot of these things are super interesting research questions. So it'd be awesome to see some more data on that. For the time being, and for the back specifically, because you mentioned that, and in general, I think that having a variety of exercises in your program will cover you to a decent extent, right? Like, as you mentioned, you can either take a middle-of-the-road approach, where some muscle groups may work in synergistically, but ultimately, as long as you're training through a lot of different joint functions, especially for something like the back, where muscle groups have sometimes opposing actions during a given movement, um, and a lot of different muscle groups are involved with different functions, etc., I think that's kind of where some of the bodybuilding dogma from back in the day emerged where, oh, you have to hit your back from all angles, brother, you know? Because there is something to it in the sense that your back is a lot of muscles and they act a lot of different joints. So I think until we have more evidence on how neuromechanical matching and actions with different joints impact and influence hypertrophy during actual adaptations, that's kind of a good uh, way to cover your bases. I'm definitely open to speculation and I think that's where Potentially, some degree of uh, inference from surface EMG can be helpful, right? But I'd say that's relatively limited, and I'd say the main recommendation by and large is, hey, train your muscle from a variety of angles, uh, potentially biasing the length of position a bit more than you would have traditionally done. Yeah, yeah. I think... Go ahead. Okay. No, no, I just wanted to, to add on that, that in especially in the context uh, of uh, physique optimization or muscle development optimization and the audience of, of, of your of your podcast, I think it is it is very unlikely that anybody who you know f follows your content and, and even listens to this that they're doing chin-ups and rows for their back, you know It is very likely that they're performing you know five plus exercises uh, at a high intensity of effort, multiple angles. So a lot of people, I feel that they, they see this discussion, which is an, a really interesting discussion. And, and as muscle geeks, we care about those, those small differences. Uh, but that, that's all like, that's all there is to it. It's interesting. There's, there's some potential there where we can look at minor differences, but at the same time, it's not that they should feel as if they're performing they're, they're uh, They shouldn't feel as if they're missing out on a bunch of gains and Oh man, um, what if it's not the right angle? And what if I am not really biasing the lower portion of my lat? Chances are, you know, if you're doing six exercises uh, that involve your lats and your form is pretty strict and long muscle and so on and so forth and a lot of variety and you're pushing yourself hard, chances are you're not missing out on that many gains. Yeah, maybe there's more to it, but, you know, because we get a lot of clients. Milo and I get a, a, a lot. We get some clients that do feel as if Oh, is is my exercise selection though solid? And it's like you you you're doing set, you know, bunch of exercise for your back, a lot like fifteen to twenty sets per week. Um, but what if what about the angle here? What about uh, the execution there? Sure, we can play around with it, but it, it's it's unlikely that that's what you're missing. It's probably time and you know, f bulking along with with the training hard and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. To kind of to kind of wrap up on that topic, I mean, because I think. You know, that's one of the biggest criticisms of how the stuff we teach, I think, is used. It's like, oh, this is the optimal way for this. And you have, like, you're not going to get your iliac lats if you don't do this one particular type of, of pull down. Um, but where I think it's beneficial is like, you have, you like, there's a, there's a ton of exercises out there. 
Um, and I think being able to understand the qualities of like, hey, what muscle length is this for? Is this exercise, right? Um, what's what's the resistance challenge of this exercise, right? And then if we can look at it from a mechanical perspective, you know, and whatnot, and we can get those things overlaying and like, you can get like a win on all of those boxes and you can understand like which exercises are kind of redundant versus which exercises are, you know, dissimilar, right? Like, I mean, sometimes it's pretty obvious. It's like, okay, okay. If I do a, if I do some sort of pressing at a downward angle, that's going to be more lower chest. than if I got to do some inclined pressing, like that's, that's, that's more intuitive. I think the back gets a little bit more complex with people because it's like, well, you got the angle that you pull, but then are your elbows wider? Are they narrow? And okay, what if I can rotate my ribs? Should I lean one way, the other way, whatever? And it's like, you know, those are things where, um, not only do we have like, you know, we could apply any of these theories on top of it. And under the same principle, like I look at what we're doing from a mechanics perspective, from a resistance profile perspective, the same way as the muscle length, um, thing is, is that the evidence that I do have seems to be either favorable or null, and there really isn't an argument against that. And so then I'm like, if we're getting a positive outcome in terms of, hey, when we set the person up this way, they either feel the muscle more, they're able to handle it with more load, or they're more stable or whatnot, or we're just, for whatever reason, seeing more like better progression or consistency in technique. Because a lot of times, you know, when you're looking at what we call like biased motions, um, a lot of these motions is it's not just that like, hey, we're doing this because we think it's also going to be very beneficial for this tissue. Um, is is it does actually provide some sort of constraints and consistency around a technique that then you can monitor progression around as well. We're like, hey, okay, we're doing this pull here. We know this has these qualities there, and now we can monitor progression across those. And so now I have this end of one experiment going where, hey, if this exercise isn't playing out, I don't want to just choose another exercise that maybe has all of the same qualities. I want to choose an exercise of like, hey, I'm, maybe this isn't the thing that's working. I need to go, maybe, maybe it needs to be something, maybe let's try doing something at a longer muscle length, or let's try doing something with a different resistance challenge or, or, or whatever it may be, right? Then I have kind of like that, you know, out of one data to ap apply to that to that person as well right so yeah. i it's so hard to sell the like look there's all these things that you can do like they all probably matter but like to this small like to this small degree but my, what my my argument usually is is like if you care enough to look into these things then what Definitely. likely happens is it's these things that make you know you get a percent here and a percent here and a percent here and then you apply effort and time to that it's probably a meaningful difference relative to what you want. Yeah. Right? In, in terms of like, cause it's, it's like it, those, those little differences are important to you, right? If you, if you're going to be that consistent with your training and you're going to work that hard, then you probably care about a percent here and a, and a percent there. And for people that are like, well, you're like, there's people that are just beginning and whatever that like, look, if, if you only train three times a week, you know, for 40 minutes or whatever, then you're probably not spending hours, you know, trying to figure this stuff out or, or whatever anyway. So it's like, I don't necessarily see it's like, is, is it as big of a problem? Like this whole, like, oh, optimization is, you know, this bad thing because like, okay, it's not like people, if you're swapping out your gym sessions for going through PubMed articles, then yeah, that's, that's clearly, that's clearly an issue. Um, but I mean, I think that's probably if if it is the case it's extremely extremely rare there's probably some personality traits there that are more the problem than than the principles so yeah um 
sorry, just in a bunch of you. Go ahead. One sorry. Yeah, just 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 to very 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 quickly add on that. I think that you know for for a lot of us this is uh, more than just lifting for general muscle gains and um, longevity, longevity and overall health. And you know I want to deadlift next amount of weight because that's fun to me. Milo and I have recently got into mechanical watches. Uh, that's the. That's just another hobby. But my point is that these subtle differences, um, aside from whether they actually benefit hypertrophy in the long term uh, and whether that uh, difference is meaningful to the gen pop or just physique athletes or just people who want to optimize hypertrophy, it may just add enough novelty and enough of a um, sense of, uh, not, not mystery, but of excitement to, okay, I'm trying something different. This feels a bit nicer. Uh, I'm excited about my training, therefore I'm going to be more adhering to my training and so on and so forth, um, that it's, it still has some value as long as it's communicated, which I think that's done in a, in a, in a good way, um, as long as it's communicated with the appropriate amount of caution. So I'm, don't, don't take, not for you, but for, for whoever is listening, uh, don't take the, our comments as reduction, reductionistic or, um, we're not the, the the side of hey just do three exercises brother and add weight and um, you know drink uh, milk and whatever the starting strength crowd used to say that's that's equally meh if this is your hobby and you love it and you love geeking out about the details uh, watching your videos and be like okay i'm going to try this uh different handle and this pull down it's fun and uh, at the same time it's it's probably going to be as effective it may be even more effective than your traditional pull down but yeah i doubt many beginners uh, start and uh, start and uh, start thinking way too much about whether they will perform a lat pull down in this way or the other way, you know. Yeah, and very quickly, just to uh, say something and not to make pack jaws here, but I want to give you credit, Casm, because Casm or Casm, by the way. Yeah, yeah, please, bro. Yeah, Casm, Casm, because because Eric Helms kept saying Casm, and I was like, man, I was like, that doesn't mean that's right, you know. Um, not to make pack jaws. But I want to give you credit for how I've especially recently seen you communicate information. Like, you have been extremely nuanced in your discussion of these things. Like, for example, I remember when I very first came across you, I saw some of the EMG stuff. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Is he trying to make, like, inferences about how EMG uh, will predict hypertrophy long-term, etc.? Like, strong inferences. But recently, I've really seen your content and I've been like, oh, he's very nuanced about it. He's very sort of uh, cautious about it. He acknowledges limitations of the data. Um, that he collects and that he sees. So huge credit to you for not blowing these differences out of proportion and like, as much as you're not conducting research, being a good researcher, you know, and being a good size communicator in general. So more, I'm going to give more props now to you by saying that in other fields, and you can use it as an argument, like in powerlifting, for example, or in strength sports, there's a lot of emphasis uh, uh, placed on accessories, auxiliary lifts, uh, even you know partial ranges of motion like you know, floor presses, a, a bunch of methods and techniques that are have not really ever been investigated formally, um, and people are much less skeptical about those than they are about some modifications for you know hypertrophy optimization. So the same way. You know, people will look at a powerlifting program that has a bunch of uh, unorthodox and experimental approaches to maximizing squat strength versus just squatting or performing, you know, as a close variation of the squat. Uh, but at the same time, they seem to lose their mind when somebody wants to 
geek out and be a bit more experimental with uh, hypertrophy things. And nice beard and nice hat and nice headphones and nice house in the background, whatever I can see. Or if it's a house, I'm not sure. Well, thank thank you guys very much. Um, I mean, the, the, the work that we do, the reason that we have the research stuff that we have is basically just to increase the probability that we're giving our students the best tools, you know, to, you know, the best tools to be able to help their clients. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's like, my hope is, is that, Hey, you know, if we find some things that are interesting, then maybe actually the formal research does actually pick that up. Um, and, uh, uh, Chris Bearcat's actually, you know, doing a study on, you know, polids versus like sagittal pole, like, and that probably would not have happened if it weren't just for like the social media stuff around the, the different lat things. And so I think that's, I think it's cool that we're probably, we're getting like some social pressure to investigate these, these topics, um, you know, which is cool. Yeah. And I'm just trying to like contribute in a, in a way that I can, cause I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stop teaching students and, and working hands-on to be able to just conduct research. It's not like, that's not a practical or, or a, like, I mean, to be honest, I don't like, I, I'm not jealous at all of the, the conditions that you guys have to work in. Like I am so like, I, I would consider that the protocols that we do in terms of our EMG are actually, I would argue better than pretty much anything you would see in the published research. Um, but I also love the freedom that I be, I am able to have of like, I have lean trained athletes, like with the best equipment in the world that I can just throw on here. And we're not just going to measure two things. We're going to measure a whole bunch of things. And I'm able to like, you know, I had this conversation with Brett Contreras about like, you know, sensor placement on the glutes and whatever. And it's like, well, people do that because that's the way it's been in the manual and nobody wants to justify why they changed it. And I'm like, well, screw the manual. That doesn't make sense. I'm going to do it this way, or I'm just going to do it all these different ways and then be able to look at, look at all of that stuff, um, you know, and combine it with, with everything that we have. And so I like the freedom that I have, I think is, is, is awesome. Right. Obviously then that comes with, you know, a, you great know, great freedom comes great yeah. responsibility. You said lean individuals. Was that a stab at me by any chance? No. Is it like, oh. <laughs> you would describe. Keep in mind, though, that our research. Okay, Milo's doing his research for his PhD. Mm -hmm. Everything else we do is pro bono. Uh, pro bono, as in, uh, we do it because we love it. And I would, it would be a lie to say that we haven't talked about potentially looking into opening an independent lab at some point in the future and have some equipment so we can carry out our own studies. But yeah, that would be another discussion. Yeah. Well, hey, if you guys, you know, want to, uh, you, you know, if you're, you're trying to shop around with what you want to get or whatever, you know, you're you're welcome to, you know, come down to the HQ and play with all of our toys and see uh, what you like and what you don't like. Um, we got, yeah, and and I mean, I'm just money, disposal, right? Like just money, yeah, we, yeah, right. So yeah. buy your hat, the one you're wearing right now, though, not not just any hat, not the one you're wearing right now. This one, yeah, right. So yeah, for for the cost of a of a fifty thousand dollar force plate, I will let you have this hat. Um, well, I've I've taken a ton of you guys' time uh, today. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to do this again, but uh, I don't want to take up any more today. So, is there anything you guys want to say uh, in conclusion? Anything you guys want to throw out? Let people know about in terms of what you guys have going on, where they can find you. How they can they can find us on the streets. We'll see. It's on site. Uh, no, just kidding. 
They can find me uh, on Dr. Double underscore pack on Instagram. Unfortunately, the proper usernames were taken. And Milo Wolf. Yeah, you can find me at Wolf Coach on Instagram. So that's my last name, Wolf and Coach with an underscore at the end. Um, and yeah, closing words. Everything is killing your gains. Uh, full range of motion is killing your gains. Length and partials are the only thing that works. Awesome. Well, you guys, you guys heard it there. Um, you know that's what we're about. We're about the the absolute claims. Um, so make sure you guys are following these guys. I think right now you guys are probably two of the best voices, you know, in the science and evidence based community, especially in the, uh, you know, for those of you guys that are focused on getting mo bigger and mo stronger. So thank you guys very much. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you give us a like, subscribe, and leave us a review, and we will see you on the next episode of the N1 Experience.